You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's up, members of the jury, and happy Freedom Friday. I'm your host, Lucas Hursty, a.k.a. the self-anointed people's champ, wishing all of the freedom fighters out there nothing but success. And if, never mind, scratch that. When you have some, I and the members of the jury would love to hear about that story. And so please reach out to us. Come and be a guest on the show. Now, before getting into today's episode, I do want to take time to highlight a message that's mentioned at the end of every episode that may be missed. And that's that this and all of the episodes are for purely educational purposes. And all of the opinions are mine or the guests themselves. There's never a reflection or representation that's related to any entity or organization. And with that being said, let's get into today's amazing and incredible trial breakdown, where our guest took a difficult case to the box. In our field, it's no secret that sex or sexual-related offenses are some of the most challenging cases to try. There's almost always a very sympathetic victim who alleges to be a first-hand witness. There's also very challenging hills to climb in regards to the social stigma that a jury is going to have. However, despite those hurdles, these are the kind of cases that usually go to trial because at the end of the day, more likely than not, sexual registration is going to be on the table, if not mandatory in the event of a conviction. And avoiding convictions that require sexual registration are essentially a must for our indigent clients, because it's exactly those kind of convictions, even at the misdemeanor level, that will prevent our clients from getting aid or resources, or even make them banned or prohibited from living in certain rehabilitative facilities. And so avoiding a sexual registration requirement is key. Luckily for this client, he had one of the smartest public defenders in the game and is our guest today. Allie, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hi, everyone. My name is Allie Gibney. I'm a public defender. I've been a public defender for about three and a half years now, and I feel very strongly about sex cases for exactly all those reasons that you just mentioned. I think especially at the misdemeanor level, which is where, you know, all of my experience with sex cases is at the moment, um, the consequences just don't fit the crime if there even was a crime. A lot of the times, I don't think a crime actually took place. But if there was, the consequences of having to register as a sex offender are just completely inappropriate in most of the cases that I've seen. And unfortunately, the prosecuting agencies want everyone to register as a sex offender. And it's the lack of perspective on their end that really, you know, makes us take these cases to the box. Because if they're not willing to come off of it, I'm not willing to sign up for that or have my clients sign up for that without having them work for it. Um, And so that's why I chose this case to talk about today. I think it's a really good example of lack of perspective from the prosecuting agency's point of view and ultimately a really great victory. Well, we're super excited to get into it. I know that I'm super interesting to see how you were able to obtain a victory in such a challenging case because you're absolutely right. These, these are some of the most difficult to try, but they're also the most important to. And I think oftentimes if it's just the objective viewing of, of some kind of sexual body part that, that raises these, these charges and these crimes and even the police call, but that 
legally speaking and legally analyzing these cases, there's always a mental state that's required to go along with the indecent exposure, for lack of a better term. And when you're dealing with indigent and homeless clients, the fragility of their mental state is on such a spectrum. And, you know, oftentimes we don't believe that there is that specific intent that is required for some of these more common sexual offenses that we see charged. So let's get into this case. Um, I wanted to say I got a quick view of the complaints and there was two sex-related offenses. Why don't you go ahead and explain what those were to the members of the jury and just give like a little bit of a element breakdown as to what we were looking for. Sure. So in this case, my client was charged with a violation of penal code section 314 subdivision one, which is indecent exposure and penal code section 647A, which is a lewd act in public. They're essentially the same exact thing. The only real difference between the two is that for the indecent exposure, you have to be directing public attention to yourself. A a good example of a 314 indecent exposure might be somebody who likes to flash people and tries to direct attention to themselves because they like when people see them. That is like an appropriate time for a 314 to be charged. I always say, you you know, you have a a really good 314 from the prosecutor's position or a really bad 314 from the defense position if if the client says the the famous lines, quote, you want some of this. Right. Like that's the type of language that is shame. Like they're directing people to their bad behavior. Exactly. And if you don't have that quote, you know, now now we need to look between the weeds. Right. For the, the second count, though, the 647A, you don't have to have that directing public attention. So that's a general intent crime, which can generally be a little bit harder for the defense to win because in a 647A charge, all you have to do is be touching a sexual organ in a public place where people are present or could be present and people could be offended, sexually offended or annoyed. So that's very vague. It's very general. And you don't have to intend for people to see you for you to be found guilty of that. So that's generally a little bit harder of a charge to win. Um, In this case, they charged both. Now, before we get to essentially the first stage of the the trial process, would you give the members of the jury a quick synopsis of the facts so they have a little bit of background as to what the prosecution was working from to even bring these charges? Sure. So the police report indicated that my client was in this it's sort of like a walkway. Um, There's businesses on one side and then a parking garage on the other. And he's kind of in this walkway. He's in a wheelchair and the reporting party calls in to tell the police that they see my client masturbating. And so police respond. They see my client. He's the only person in a wheelchair in that spot. They also said that he had his pants down around his thighs. He had a towel over his groin area and that he had a magazine in his lap. Now, a discrepancy we'll get into later is the police report just indicated it was a magazine. But by the time we got to trial, this magazine suddenly became a hustler magazine, which circumstantially is not great for me. It kind of supports their theory that he was maybe looking at this pornographic magazine and masturbating, which is what the complaining witness said my client had done. And, and that's ultimately one of the first issues that's tackled in the case during the motions in limine, correct? That's correct. Okay. And so during the motions in limine, the prosecution had sought to introduce the fact that it was a hustler magazine and that obviously that was being used for a a 
pornographic purpose, and you were asking the court to exclude that evidence. Can you, for the members of the jury, break down how that hearing went? Sure. Yeah. So because the in the police report, it was just indicated that there was a magazine. There was no sort of qualifier to it, what type of magazine it was to suddenly the police officer go, he was going to testify that it was a hustler magazine. I just didn't trust that. And so I wanted to have something called a 402 hearing where we can kind of get this worked out um, in advance of the jury hearing this, because that's very prejudicial to my case and to my client. And I brought it up in motions in limine and asked the court to exclude that information. Because the court denied my motion in limine, I asked for the 402 hearing so I could get a better sense of what the officer was going to say prior to it being said in front of the jury. And let me just say, especially for potentially any young lawyer that's listening or any listener that's going to be a future lawyer, this is an absolute perfect example of how to utilize a 402 hearing or just an evidentiary challenge hearing in any other state. I'm sure they have that exact you know, evidence code that allows for this to really put the pressure on the evidence before it can even make its way to the jury members. And you, know, and you don't want it to ha- be unsure as to how it's going to be presented or what's exactly going to be presented in front of the jury. And so using a 402 or evidentiary hearing is an excellent way to kind of get a firsthand exposure to that evidence and also challenge its admissibility in the beginning. And so what were some of your focal points when trying to keep this evidence excluded during the 402? Well, I didn't have a lot to work to work with. <laughs> so, I I and I didn't really prepare for the full 402 hearing in advance because this was kind of dropped on me last minute. So I kind of had to do it on the fly. And what I focused on is whether or not Hustler is truly pornographic. Um, I think in today's society, a Carl's Jr. commercial could be considered pornographic to some. So what's to say, you know, women in bikinis in a magazine is pornographic. And so that was my angle. Um, It was a really fun hearing to have because people get uncomfortable about these topics. And so to watch the officer squirm as I was questioning him was really fun. And I remember one question I asked him straight up, like how many hustler magazines have you looked at? And he was very uncomfortable uh, he said he couldn't remember that that many, and huh? Was like, yeah, yeah, too many to count. And so I asked him, you know, but you have seen, you have looked at a hustler magazine, and he said yes. And I said, have you ever read any of the articles in there? And he admitted he had not. Um, and so I kind of just went down that road and uh, made him as uncomfortable as I possibly could. And then ultimately, I I did ask to renew my objection to having this evidence come in. And that was, again, denied by the judge. Well, that sounds like a super entertaining and fun hearing. And again, even though we might not have gotten the result that you wanted, it still puts you now in a position to be better prepared to deal with it and address it at the time that it comes before the members of the jury then had you not had that hearing. And so kudos to you again for asking for that hearing and and having it granted. Um, So let's get into the opening statements. We know now that the prosecution have this evidence that is going to come in. How did they essentially highlight the bad facts for you during their opening statement? Their opening statement was just classic opening statement from a prosecutor, just reiterating all of the bad facts Um, there's nothing special to it. There was no theme. There was no theory. There was no story. It was just parroting what, what the police report said, um, that my client was masturbating, that he was in public. He, you know, he was getting off to a hustler magazine and all of these people were around that 
could have seen him and could have been offended. They really played up the day and time. It was like middle of the day. There was a like a family Jewish center across the street. So they really tried to make it sound like all of these families and these children, you know, were exposed to this horrible man and had to see something so uncomfortable, how offensive that is. And it was just completely dramatized, in my opinion. Fair to say they focus more on the harm and potential severity that could be existing as opposed to the very specific set of facts that were reported on. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Well, you know, fortunately, the Constitution provides the, you know, a fair trial means that each individual charged with the crime gets a defense attorney to do just that, to hold the police and the prosecution and judges accountable to ensure that the client is getting a fair trial. And so what were some of your focal points during your opening statement to kind of contradict this, we have it in the bag mentality? Yeah. So I don't think they saw my defense coming and I didn't shy away from what it was in my opening statement. And my theme of the case was that things are not always as they appear. And I really focused on how somebody can think that they see something, but that's not actually what was happening. And um, my client has significant physical deformities to his body. And there was no way, in my opinion, there was no way he was masturbating because his hands are significantly deformed. And so I talked about that in my opening statement. And I told them that you're going to hear from his jail nurse, who I called as one of my witnesses. And she's going to, you know, testify and tell you about how physically deformed his hands are and how he needs help with everyday activities because he can't use his hands. Um, His hands were in locked, like fist positions. You could not open his fingers. And so there was no way he could hold anything. So I talked about that. And I talked about the testimony that they were going to hear from my investigator who, um, you know, took witness statements, took pictures of the area where this happened. And uh, we ran a little fun experiment to test whether or not he could really hold anything in his hands. And he, you know, the investigator had recorded that experiment we ran um, and was going to testify about about it and and his observations on whether or not my client could use his hands. Wow. So that's that's actually super exciting to hear because obviously you went after the fact that they weren't going to be able to meet their burden, but also in the in the rare sense from the defense, you affirmatively stated that you were going to have multiple witnesses to put on for in a case, a defense case in chief, which we don't oftentimes get. So we're super excited to to get into that because we haven't been able to explore a lot of defense cases in chief. But obviously, before we can get to your case in chief, we do start with the prosecution's case in chief. Most of the time, they're calling the reporting party, the police officers who responded. And I don't think that this case, and correct me if I'm wrong, necessarily required any kind of expert. So why don't you talk to us about some of the things that the prosecution made sure to get on the record during their case in chief that would best benefit them. Sure. So they, they started with the complaining witness and that's the person who called the police in this case. And it was a male and he was one of the business owners in that walkway that this took place in. And so they called him first and he was um, very charming on the stand for his direct. He was uh, very personable. I think the jury liked him initially. Um, He made them laugh a little bit. But what he was really talking about was how how he's a business owner there and 
Um, he he owns a Segway touring business. <laughs> but I started to get the sense that he was really full of himself and thought he was a really cool, popular guy because he had said when he was talking about what business he owned, he said that he was like locally famous. And I remember thinking, I've never even heard of you and I'm local. And I lived just blocks from where this took place. I didn't even know his business was there. So I just kind of started to get the sense that he thought he was really cool. And so I was hoping to kind of expose some of that in my cross because I got the sense that the jury was liking him. But he just, he told the same story that he told the police, that he saw my client by these bushes and he could see him masturbating And he also talked generally about how frustrated he was with the homeless in general, because they use that walkway quite a bit, um, according to him. And he's frankly tired of it. He thinks it takes away from his business and doesn't like it, which was gold for me, because those are great cross points that help me show he didn't really see my client masturbating. He's tired of the homeless people in that walkway. And my client was just another victim to him that he could, you know, call and, and harass. And so when he was on direct saying those sorts of things, you know, those are little like nuggets that I'm writing down to add to my cross that sometimes we don't get beforehand in any sort of interview, because typically when they're talking to the prosecutor, they're friendly. And so they don't say things like that until they're in open court. And and being able to get little nuggets like that from the reporting party is crucial because essentially in this kind of case, that that's the testimony that matters. Exactly. You know, police are going to show up afterwards and, and report and document things, but they're not going to be able to more or less prove any of the elements of the case that the prosecution need. They're just there as supporting witnesses and and to say, hey, this thing was documented in, in this way. And so it really comes down to this firsthand, this reporting witness, his his credibility. And I think anytime you have your witness really talking about the character or living circumstances of the client and less about the actual fact and elements of the crime that shows a sense of bias that really needs to be attacked and addressed and it sounds like the prosecution really tried to elicit that they this witness actually saw your client masturbating with his hands which would require a certain physical capability that without actually seeing and looking at your client you would just assume that he had Right. And he, he did. He testified that he saw his hand wrapped around his penis. And I knew that there was physically no way that was possible. So I think his bias plays into his perception and what he thought that he saw because he's tired of the homeless people around. And so, you know, when he saw my client what he described it as flopping it around it being his penis, he assumed jumped the gun and just assumed that my client was masturbating. And that's what he told the police, but there was physically no way that was possible. Now, oftentimes when the police are used during the trial, a lot of media can come in through their testimony via body worn camera or pictures that they may have taken were there any clips from the body worn cameras or pictures that they may have taken that you know the prosecution thought were helpful to them or that you ultimately were able to utilize because they were more helpful to you actually? Yes. The police had their body worn camera on when they arrived and my client was sitting in his wheelchair. He did have the towel over his groin and he did have a magazine in his lap, although you could not read what type of magazine it was. Um, And critical to my case was that the officers, when they go to arrest him, 
they have to lift him into the police car because he cannot use his hands and he has one amputated leg. And so he couldn't walk. He can't stand up. Um, And when they lift him into the car because he cannot do it on his own, you do see that his pants are um, down around his thighs And you can also see that his wheelchair is covered in feces. And part of my defense was also that he he was trying to use the restroom. And for somebody who is homeless and doesn't have a place to use the restroom and, you know, has these physical deformities, he can't, he can't stand up to go to the bathroom. He has to sit down and pee from his wheelchair and he he does try to use his hands to hold his penis so he doesn't pee all over himself, but that's certainly not masturbating. And so that was part of my defense too. And I think the feces and his pants being down around his waist support that. How is he going to pull his pants back up? He cannot use his hands at all. The towel over his groin, I thought was a great point for me because it shows he's trying to be private. He also was, so in this alleyway, there's a little planter section with trees and bushes, and he was around that. So back from the sidewalk and around these trees tells me he's trying to be private. And so the directing public attention to himself element. I think all of that evidence really goes to attack that because all of those things to me showed that he was trying to be private. I love when as a defense attorney, we're able to really utilize some of those media pieces of evidence that the prosecution will introduce into evidence because there's I think a sense of credibility that jurors give to prosecution evidence that doesn't necessarily automatically transfer to the defense, depending on the source of it, right? Everybody wants to trust the police and that they're providing authentic evidence. We we want that as well. You know what I mean? So I think anytime you're able to utilize that, that, that sounds really great. And, you know, you just said something that, you know, we talked about in the beginning of the episode, but I didn't necessarily catch it, or I think you maybe, we, that's why we highlighted it in the beginning, but when, when focusing on the directing public attention, was the reporting witness able to elicit any testimony that supported that, such as the, you know, the famous, do you want some of this language from client, essentially? No, there was absolutely no evidence of him directing public attention to himself. You know, he wasn't waving or pointing at himself or, you know, looking somebody in the eyes. He didn't, you know, say the famous quote, you want some of this. He didn't say anything like that. He said no words, actually. And he wasn't doing anything else like pointing or waving or trying to get people to look at him. And so I didn't think they had any evidence to really support that element. Okay, so they they definitely harp on the fact that client is homeless. Reporting party feels that he's a nuisance, gives a a superficial account of of what was happening. That then takes us into your cross-examination where you now you feel like you have an ample amount of, of ammunition. Why don't you start explaining to the members of the jury how you started to dissect your cross-examination and where you started? Sure. So I I started to cross him on his perception where he was standing in relation to where my client was. Because another thing was he was kind of diagonal from my client, but my client's back was towards him back to side because he was diagonal and he's inside of his business. So I wanted to start there with where he was in relation to my client to attack his ability to perceive. And as I was asking him, I mean, these are pretty non-confrontational questions. You know, I'm just asking him where he was standing. His demeanor flipped. I mean, he was very nice and charming and, you know, talkative when the prosecutor was cross or directing him. And then as soon as I started, every single question was a problem. It was a fight. 
And, you know, inside I had never um, experienced this hostile of a witness. And so I was getting nervous inside, but, you know, it's also great for me because I can use his demeanor to attack his credibility. So it, but it can be tricky to stay cool, calm and collected when a witness is kind of going off the rails like this, but every single question he would try not to answer he wouldn't even look at me at some points. He kind of like turned away and wouldn't even look at me, kind of like a child having a tantrum. Um, he started being very aggressive, condescending. At one point, he referred to me as honey in a way that the message was like, I was too stupid to understand what he was saying. And so he was like, no, honey, that's not it. And... So I got kind of rattled. Wow. Yeah. Internally, I got yeah. kind of rattled. And and those witnesses will definitely do that to you. You know, I think that you have your general neutral kind of witness. You have your really aggressive ones. And then you have your very sympathetic. And I know for me, I live for and love the aggressive witnesses because that's fits my cross style and my feedback since I've been in law school is always you need permission, quote unquote, permission from the jury to be aggressive with the witness. And it usually takes the witness being really aggressive like that in order for it to you to match their energy. Yeah. Which in this case sounds amazing for you because what would be and should have been a very sympathetic situation and event if it be- it was believed to have happened the way it was described, you don't have that same energy coming from this reporting party. It becomes a much more difficult case with a sympathetic set of facts and then a sympathetic witness, but seems like his aggression level was able to shift the focus away from the sympathetic nature of the original offense. Right. And... I stayed very calm. I stayed very polite. My tone did not change with him. And I knew in closing, I was just going to slam him. But during cross, I felt like it gives me credibility if I stay cool and calm and collected and don't react to his games. And so I didn't. I did not react. He called me honey. I didn't even ask him not to call me that. I just moved on. Um, I was internally rattled, but I just kept going. He would refuse to answer my questions. I would ask him again. At one point, he even, I asked him a question and I can't remember what it was exactly, but he, uh, he was so flustered and irritated that I was asking him questions. He turned to the judge and said, I don't even know why we're here. He's obviously guilty. Why is she continuing to ask me questions? And so I objected. And I mean, that's the level of the change in his demeanor, which all worked in my favor. Man, that. Well, good for you. You definitely sound like you handled the situation better than than I would have. Yeah. <laughs> because I yeah, some of that stuff is just yeah unacceptable. But kudos, but kudos to you because that shows such a level of professionalism, which I know that you have and expected nothing else from you. you know, one of the things that I always tell some of my students is that at the end of the day, I think the thing that separates really good trial attorneys from the best of the best is how you handle your what the fuck moment. Because every single trial is going to have at least one what the fuck moment. And most trials are going to have multiple. And how you handle those and rise above that adversity is really going to impact the overall result on the case. And so having that unexpected witness flip and dealing with it sounds amazing. And, you know, I take it 
that wasn't the only what the fuck moment you had in this trial. No, I had another what the fuck moment while I was still cross-examining him. While in the what the fuck moment. While in the what the fuck (laughs) moment came another what the fuck moment. Yeah, this this trial was crazy. (laughs) Oh, you got to love trial, though. You got to love it. Yeah. So while I'm questioning him, it was actually, I mean, maybe one or two questions after he had called me, honey, the phone rang in the the courtroom, the court clerk's phone rang. And in my gut, immediately, I knew what it was about. And to give a little backstory, this case, the one that we're talking about now, and I had another case that we answered up for trial at the same time. And it was me and the same prosecutor on both of our cases. And because this client was in custody, his case got priority. And so we had discussed that this case would go first. And once we were done with this case, we would start the next one. Well, unbeknownst to the prosecutor, their only witness in the other case was about to move to New York. And they figured it out after we had already answered up for this trial. And so in order to kind of go against the agreement that we had made that this case would go first and the other case would go second, they put a new prosecutor on the other case. So that way they could answer up ready on that one too. And then the only reason why that case couldn't go forward is because then I was unavailable because of this case. And that just set off a domino effect of problems and you know we litigated it 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 became a huge issue but ultimately i was in trial questioning this complaining witness when the the phone rang and the judge asked us to go sidebar and what that means is we just go we stop what we're doing and we go to the side and me the prosecutor and the judge have a private conversation outside of the presence of the jury. And the judge had indicated that the conditional exam for the other case was going to take place right now. And so essentially we were stopping the trial to start the trial on the other case. And so I was beside myself. I mean, I was objecting left and right, but the judge didn't care at all. So all my objections were overruled. Um, The judge said I could finish cross-examining this witness, and then we would stop the trial to do a conditional exam for the other trial. And so now I'm just like, how I even kept going and like was focused enough to even know what questions I was about to ask on cross is kind of beside me at this point. Um, because inside I was freaking out, just completely freaking out. Well, just being able to do a hearing within a trial, within a hearing, within a trial, however that situation unfolded, I think really just highlights the the power of what it means specifically to be, a, in my opinion, a public defender and the amount of experience and professionalism we're able to obtain in such a short period of time. A lot of people want to give us slack for our unavailability or that we weren't able to be at a top law firm when most of the public defenders I know, they choose to do this. They sought after this job and and they seek it. And it takes a very talented, I think, lawyer to be able to do a cross-examination in another hearing within a cross-examination Uh, of a trial. And, you know, normally 95, 99% of the time, we're able to rely on our colleagues and our other freedom fighters to potentially handle our hearing or our matters. But in certain circumstances, you just you're the best person for the job. And so you need to make it work. And it sounds like you were able to do so. And so kudos to you uh, for being able to do that for it not to get the better of you and ultimately have any kind of effect on the ultimate trial. So it sounds like your cross-examinations went well for you and, and that you were 
you should be at least feeling pretty good about the state of the case by the time you, you finish those. Yes. For the trial. Yeah. Of the complaining witness. Yes. Yes. Once it finished, honestly, it was like a sigh of relief because now I had to switch my attention to something else. Um, but overall I felt like it went well for me. I got what I needed out of him and his, you know, his demeanor was just amazing for my arguments in closing. So I felt, I felt pretty good about all of that. So the prosecution wrap up their case. They, they called, they were going to call two officers also. So they had called one. Um, I, and nothing, you know, special about that. I, I really highlighted their lack of investigation. The client had told them that he was trying to use the restroom, that he, because he's so physically deformed, he tries to use um, a urinal device. So that way he doesn't just urinate all over himself. And he had a duffel bag with him, but they didn't look through his duffel bag to see if in fact he did have that urinal device there, which is exonerating evidence. So I, um, I really highlighted their lack of investigation. You know, they just showed up, saw my client sitting there in a wheelchair, pants around his legs, towel, hustler magazine. And they just assumed exactly what the prosecutor assumed that he was masturbating, using the magazine to masturbate. And, and then that was that. Didn't even for a second consider looking at client's hand and consider whether or not he was even possible. No, didn't even, I mean, and they have to physically lift him into the car. They have to put his seatbelt on for him. They have to do all of these things that he can't do. And it never crossed their mind to even note his physical condition or anything. They just, they showed up and their perspective is so narrow that everyone's guilty that it's, you know, a lot of the times they don't even do a thorough investigation. And, you know, that's something that I really like to harp on and close too, is that the police are there to gather evidence for both sides. And when their investigation is so pointed towards the prosecution, they ignore all of these other avenues of investigation, then they don't do their job. And then that makes it harder for the jury to do their job because they aren't actually given the evidence. They aren't given the investigation from both sides that the police are supposed to do. Totally agree. And I think, I think one of the issues, it, it's a balancing act because if the reporting party is true, it makes sense that the police want to act as quickly as possible to get this sexual offender off the street. But the desire to get a potential sexual offender off the street doesn't negate the necessity for a thorough investigation and even just a determination of whether or not it was even possible. Like uh, that, that's where I'm blind, blown right. away from. And so, but again, cases take their course, and this is why people are entitled to defenders. And so the prosecution rests their case in chief. We now have a moment for your case. They didn't actually. Um, no. So after, after the officer, one officer testified, they wanted to call another officer, and that officer was not there. And so we took a quick break so the prosecutor could call the officer and see where he was, how long it was going to take for him to get there. Um, and she didn't have an answer. The officer did not answer the phone. So she didn't know. So the judge said, okay, we'll, we'll start the defense case before the prosecution case is done. We'll call the witnesses out of order. And I objected because I don't want them to hear my evidence and have an opportunity to kind of cure it with the next officer, because the prosecutor can try to ask questions to negate the evidence that I'm putting on. And, you know, they can call rebuttal witnesses anyways, but um, I just, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to give them yet another advantage 
in this case. And so I objected. Um, and as basically every other objection uh, I made, it was overruled and I had to call my first witness. Whoa. Okay. So the prosecution's case is still technically open and you're now starting your case in chief. And I know you had mentioned that you called two witnesses. Which witness did you call first? I called my investigator first. And what were some of the essential facts you were able to elicit from your investigator? Yeah. So I first I wanted to admit a bunch of pictures that he had taken of the scene. Um, so I thought the the walkway um, and the planter where all the trees and bushes were were really important for the jury to see the actual scene of what we're talking about here and where my client was. And so we first we first did that. We first got in to evidence a bunch of pictures that he had taken of the scene. I also really thought the pictures were important because you can see how far back off of the sidewalk this really was. And I think without these pictures, it, it wouldn't be crazy for the jury to think this was like right on a public sidewalk with a lot of cars and people walking by, which is what the prosecution wants them to believe. So I thought those pictures were really important. So we did that first. And then we got into this, this investigation experiment we had conducted. And I really wanted to highlight, obviously, how physically deformed my client's hands were and that he can't hold, he can't hold everyday objects, let alone his penis. So we went to the jail um, before trial. We went to the jail where my client was housed and we brought a banana and we put it in my client's lap and asked him to try to pick it up. And he couldn't. And we recorded it. The investigator took pictures of it, took pictures of his hands. And so he testified to this experiment that we had done and that he could not pick up the banana. And so, you know, we got in, we got into that as well. And so while he's explaining this experiment on the record and, and to the members of the jury for your trial, were there any objections from the prosecutions to try to interrupt it? No, there weren't. Beautiful. That's awesome. So that sounds like that was definitely a win and a crucial piece of evidence that you were able to get in, introduced into the record. Was the pictures in the experiment essential, the essential use for the investigator or did you, were you able to elicit any other beneficial facts? Um, yeah, they were for the investigator and for the jury to see. Um, so we got good pictures of my client's hands and um, when he was trying to pick up the banana and, you know, he just couldn't do it. And so we we got those admitted into evidence so the jury would have those in the deliberation room to look at and consider um, while they're trying, you know, to decide this case. Amazing. That's awesome. Anytime I think we're able to obviously introduce evidence of our, on our own is also really beneficial. You mentioned that you had a second witness that you called during your case in chief. Who was that witness and, and what was the hopes of testimony to be elicited? So I called my client's jail nurse and pre-trial, I had subpoenaed his jail medical records to see if there was some information in there that could be beneficial to our case. And there was tons of information in there that really, you know, proved my case that he has these physical deformities and that he needs help with almost every single task. He was even housed on a special floor. So that way the nurses can help him. And so the goal with this witness was for her to testify about his medical condition and how she has to help him do every single thing that he can't use his hands to do the normal everyday tasks that we do because of this physical deformity further showing that these allegations are physically impossible for him to be guilty of that fantastic that you were able to use again as a 
a sheriff and person working within the jail. I mean, she might not be a sheriff, but working within the jail is going to be a credible witness to the members of the jury. And then to be able to get her to explain on the record that client has these physical deformities and that client needs her personal assistance in, in doing ordinary mundane tasks is very, very strong evidence. So yeah, that sounds like an amazing case in chief, especially in the sense when we barely ever get to do them. Not only did you get to do one, but you were able to do one that presented very powerful supportive evidence to your overarching theme and theory. So that that sounds awesome. Well, let's get into the closing. Um, we understand that the prosecution, you know, they have their sympathetic victim. They have their police who support what the victim were saying. Was there anything that they mentioned or argued in closing that took you by surprise or that you felt that you then really needed to harp on during your closing as a focal point? No, I don't think so. I think their their closing was also pretty generic, just highlighting all of the circumstantial evidence they want you to believe that my that my defense is unreasonable. They always like to say that that the defense wants you to believe and that's just, you know, XYZ and that's just not reasonable. They love to say something like that. So, you know, she just highlights the the facts and the inference she wants you to make from those facts. And she, you know, she really didn't negate my case. And I think that's something that a lot of people make a mistake of in closing is you have to address the bad facts for you. And so does the prosecutor. And she didn't address them. She did not have anything to say. And, and she really couldn't. I mean, these are physical deformities. You're not going to change. And so what she was going to say about it, I don't know. And and she decided just to completely avoid it altogether and just kind of harp on this very narrow perspective that she wants you to believe. That actually makes me think of a question relating back to your case in chief and what would be her or the prosecution's opportunity to cross-examine. Did, did Were they able to cross the jail nurse to any degree that would make it in the realm of possibility that this client even had the physical possibility of completing the the alleged facts i mean it sounds like you elicited the facts that it would make it physically impossible and so you know were there any circumstances that she was maybe able to highlight that showed that he he could do it possibly she, she really tried um she really tried but there was just there's not a lot of wiggle room on it you know the the nurse testified that he cannot um, brush his teeth. He can't hold a toothbrush. He has to wear a diaper while in jail because he cannot use the restroom by himself. And actually, that's something I, I also put in my motions in limine because at every point or in every stage of this proceeding, I wanted it to be clear that he has a physical deformity that prevents him from being able to do this. And so I actually wrote a motion in limine to go sidebar whenever my client needed to have his diaper changed because he can't go to the bathroom by himself. We can't take a quick break and him, you know, run down the hall and go to the bathroom. So she testified about that. She testified he can he can't really eat very well by himself. Um, certainly can't, if something's in a plastic bag, he can't open that. And so she, the prosecutor got a little bit, She, I, I don't think it got her anywhere, but she tried to cross that he can eat a sandwich, like between, he can hold a sandwich between his knuckles and like eat that way. Um, so she got that out, but I mean, I don't think it moved the ball for her at all. <laughs> okay, so then essentially the last part of the trial is your opportunity during your closing argument to wrap up all of the pieces of the trial that's happened and finally connect all of your dots between, you know, the aggressive reporting party, the lack of investigation, the proof of your own investigation. Why don't you highlight for the members of our jury the elements that you focused on and negated and the arguments you were able to use to to do so? 
So I, I felt very strong in my closing because I thought the evidence came out in a way that just lined up with my theme perfectly, that things are not always as they appear. And I didn't deny that he was touching his penis, but not every touching of a sex organ is a sexual touching and using the restroom is a perfect example of that. And so I said that he was not touching himself for a sexual purpose, for sexual pleasure, to sexually annoy himself. I'm sorry, not annoy himself, but annoy others. And so I really harped on this, this witness who's a business owner, who's very frustrated with the homeless people in the area, jumped to the conclusion that my client was masturbating without really being able to take a look at what he was doing and that things did not, things were not as they appeared to this witness that he really was trying to use the restroom. He could not physically could not do what the complaining witness said he saw him doing, holding his penis. He could not do it. And so I also really highlighted all of the things that I think my client was doing to have some privacy. I mean, he's a homeless man. He was an older gentleman bound to a wheelchair. And where, where do homeless people use the restroom? And even if you're a homeless person that can go into a business and use the restroom, my client can't because he only has one leg. He cannot stand up. He can't use his hands to use crutches. And so I really highlighted all the steps my client took to be private, you know, going around the bushes, being that far off the sidewalk, having the towel over his lap because he couldn't pull up his pants afterwards. So I really highlighted all of the factual things that played into our case, you know, the banana experiment, everything the jail nurse said. And then I really, I paused and I took a moment before I started getting into the demeanor of the complaining witness when talking about credibility, because I really did want the jury to understand what I thought was, you know, kind of a big deal, the way he treated me, the way he acted while on the stand, the comments that he made about my client, even though those were stricken from the record, the jury still heard them. And so I really took a moment to pause and kind of gather myself. And then I just launched into how completely inappropriate his demeanor was towards me, how he called me honey how that was not okay, how this is, this is a grown man as well. I believe he was in his forties and for him to act like a child and throw a tantrum and be so uncomfortable talking about a penis. I mean, grow up, dude. Like it was just not okay. And so when I was talking about it, I could see a lot of members of the jury nodding along with me in agreement with you know, what I had to say about his demeanor and how he treated me. Head nods during a closing argument are, already, are, are always powerful signals that you're speaking to the jurors and that they're receiving what you're saying. One of the advice and tips that I've gotten throughout my career is you always want to be the most reasonable person in the room because they tend to have the most success. And from what it sounds like over this past hour, you were definitely the more reasonable person when it came to you versus the complaining witness. And by the end of the case, it sounds to be that way as well, just in regards to this banana experiment and has it and how it can compare to just the physical possibility of whether or not the alleged crime could or could not have been committed. So that sounds like a very powerful closing argument. Why don't you let us know and the members of the jury what the verdict was in your case. Thankfully, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict on both counts. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a big relief just given all of the craziness of this trial, um, you know, between all of the what the fuck moments 
and just the stress of it all and you know the seriousness of the consequences had he been found guilty he would be required to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life that carries with it significant consequences that are just not proportionate to the crime if you if you believe the prosecution's case that he was exposed in this alleyway where only one person saw, you know, to have to register as a sex offender for the rest of your life. And if you don't, if you, if you forget, you know, that's another crime. You forget three times. That's now we're talking about a felony and going to state prison. Once you go to state prison, you're coming out on parole um, for being a sex offender, which means you're going to have an ankle monitor you got to wear which you have to charge every 12 hours. And I don't know where you're supposed to charge this as a homeless individual every 12 hours. If you don't, that's a violation. You're back in jail for up to 180 days for every violation. And so we kind of just, we put these people down this path um, that they can never bounce back from. You know, his chance of getting public assistance is gone. Public housing is gone. You know, individuals who might have a substance abuse issue, my client didn't. But if that's relevant to your case, I mean, good luck getting into a treatment program. And so we kind of condemn these people to a life in and out of custody. And it's just not proportionate to especially, you know, the misdemeanor level offenses, it's just not proportionate. I mean, if we've decided that the conduct is so minimal to be a misdemeanor, then how do you have these devastating consequences for the rest of your life? And it was the rest of your life at at the point of this trial, although the law has changed now, I don't think it's changed even remotely enough. Well, I think I'm correct in saying that even in the change of law, it's still a a life sentence to the registry. It just now allows for discretionary petition to be relieved after 10 or 20 years. Right. If approved by a judge, but you're essentially still sentenced to a life of, of registry. And so I think this case truly serves as a trophy case, as a template case. That really highlights the significance and importance of taking matters to the box, not only for the potential instant offenses or consequences, but for the collateral long-term future consequences. Because you just heard how easily it would be to potentially go from a misdemeanor offense to a felony confinement to a, a period of parole in a very short period of time. So we thank you for taking this matter to the box. We thank you for sharing this with the members of the jury on the podcast. And we'll wrap up the show with asking you the question we ask all of our guests, and that's what is the significance of taking matters to the box? I think the significance is adding a new perspective. I think our criminal justice system is so slated against defendants. The cards are stacked against us from the get-go. And I think prosecutors, I think judges, probation officers, uh, parole officers, everyone has a very narrow perspective of your client, of what they did, allegedly, and they can't see past that. And I think that that really is their downfall. And I think taking cases to the box allow us to provide a different perspective. And in doing so, we, you know, educate our jury members and hopefully they go home and tell stories to others. And so we educate the public that there is a different perspective here. And, and I think without jury trials, we don't have that. Well, members of the jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. 
Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.